The reading today is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Ben. And thanks, band. Good work. Good work. It's good to have Maria here. Everybody, that's Maria. Yes. Going to embarrass her. Seems like so like a few months ago. Man, super cool. Um, you know, when, when I was reading that passage, uh, it, it's, it's a jarring passage. It's a jarring reality, and it's one of those aspects of the Christmas story that I think we forget is in there. It seems like we always get to the journey of the Magi, them coming, them presenting gifts, and we forget that there's the rest of chapter 2 that's really an integral part of the reality of Christmas, of what is happening in this Christmas narrative. And I think that, and this happens, I think, in biblical narratives sometimes, it'll go in, and it'll go into these, really, when you really think about it, these terrible moments. This very hu- terrible human moment that because of the way it's narrated, I think we miss. And I think that I miss this oftentimes. And so I, I want to begin actually by reading something I, I wrote and in, in, in really just trying to put myself in that situation, what they were going through. Because I think it will help us understand the humanity of the situation because it's important that we understand the human elements of this story. Joseph was shaking Mary to wake up. We have to go. What? Mary asked, wiping the sleep from her eyes, not sure if she had heard her husband correctly. We have to go. I'll explain later. Later, Pack only what we need and only what we can carry, Joseph said. He knew what he was asking, and he feared this day would someday come. His son was promised to be a king, the king, the one all of the ancient books talked about, but he never knew it would look like this. Mary, we can't bring those. Pack only what we can need and only what we can carry. But those men just gave these to us. It's more valuable than anything else we have. But Mary, we can't eat gold. We'll have no time for spices and fragrances. I'm sorry, but pack only what we need and only what we can carry. Joseph could tell Mary was upset and confused. They'd finally gotten into a rhythm. Their son was walking and beginning to talk now. And Joseph knew how much the visit from those foreigners meant to her. How validating it was. Everyone thought they were crazy, and for a little bit they began to believe it. But these men traveled all the way around the world because of the promise. Surely that meant something. Mary stopped packing and stared at Joseph. Joe, I need to know what we're doing and why. Mary, he's going to kill him. Who's going to kill who? Herod. He's going to come and kill our our son. Joseph could barely make out the last word as the reality of the fear fully materialized. 
Right now? Oh God, how did you find out? A dream, Joseph said, slightly uncertain how it would be received. Mary stopped. Joseph stopped as well. He tried to read her reaction. He knew it seemed crazy, but this wasn't his first dream that came true. Mary knew this too. After this brief pause, Mary finished packing the essentials. Joseph prepared the donkey, and finally they woke their sleeping son. I know it's not possible, Mary said with a kind of disruptive joy that only comes when looking at a sleeping child. But I still think he kind of looks like you. It was their last peaceful moment for months, really for years. The road was hard and dangerous, and traveling with a two-year-old has never been easy. But finally, they made it to Egypt. They had only what they needed and only what they could carry, and there they waited and survived. Their friends and family weren't so fortunate. Days later, tragedy came in its worst form, the insecurity of a tyrant taking out his fear on children. All of Jesus' playmates, cousins, and friends, the children he would grow up to learn with and explore with, all of them, dead. There was no comfort in Bethlehem, and there never would be. In returning, Mary and Joseph packed only what they could carry and only what they needed, and they fled north to some place even more inconsequential than Bethlehem. Maybe there they could be safe from the tyranny of kings and oppression of those in charge. Maybe there they could keep their sons safe, the gift of heaven hidden in peasants' clothing. As I was thinking about this moment, you know, it's a terrible, tragic moment. And we need to realize that not only did this happen, but this happened on purpose. See, I want to read through um, some of the context and point just a few things out. And it should cause us to feel something. It should cause us to be moved and to, to, to have pain. Is this the painful reality that Jesus' family went through? And an unfortunate and painful reality that many people in our world are still going through. So as we read in Matthew, I want to start at the beginning of chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, most likely this was within the first two years of his life. This was not at the same time the shepherds were there, which I know it makes for a better nativity, but the wise men weren't there at the same time as the shepherds. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I want to point this out because we're going to see three times that what happens in the story is the result of prophecy. It's important to know this. This wasn't some inconsequential aspect of Jesus' story, but this is always going to be a part of Jesus' story. In verse 7, he says, And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. One side note is I feel like I should start paying attention more to my dreams. Seems like that's a common way of being communicated. Um, now we get to what we just read. So this just happens. This had to have been a, a powerful moment for Mary and for Joseph. This had to be something. This, these are peasants living in Bethlehem. And these people from, traveled all the way across the world to come and see them and give them gifts. This had to be a validating moment for them. So much joy in this moment. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So there's the second prophecy. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now it goes on in the story. When they returned finally, they were still in fear of Herod's son. So Herod, this is not, by the way, the same Herod that we see at Jesus' crucifixion. It's worth noting. Same, name the same thing. They are related, not the same person. So Herod dies and his son takes the throne, and he's still in fear of him. So they, when they come back, they can't come back to Bethlehem. They have to go up to Nazareth. And even there, we see, once again, this is the result of something that was prophesied earlier, that the Christ, the Messiah, was, would be a Nazarene, would be from Nazareth. The reason why I point that out, for one, this is an aspect of the biblical story and, and, the, and the Christmas story that many of us might not even know was there. Many of us might not have even known or realized that this was a part of the Christmas story. So I wanted to read that so that you'll believe me, for one, that it's in there. And secondly, it's important that we know that this was not an accident. That Jesus becoming a refugee, becoming an immigrant in a strange land, becoming a wanderer, a stranger, was not an accident. This happened on purpose. This happened with intention. And so what we're going to look at the rest of this time is really answering the question, why? Why is it important in the biblical story? Why is it important to us? Why is it important to the world that Jesus became a refugee? But before we do that, I think, I think we need to take a step back. Because being a refugee is actually something fairly common in the Bible. In fact, you could make an argument that the Bible is, in a narrative standpoint, a story of forced migration. It is a story of people being forced out of their homes to go somewhere else. It starts all the way with Adam and Eve. They had to flee the garden because of their sin. Right after that, Cain has to flee what it says east of Eden 
because of his sin against his brother. Abraham migrated in faith to a land that he had never seen from Ur. Jacob had to flee for his life from his brother Esau because he feared his, for his life because of his brother's wrath and anger. Joseph was forced out of his land into Egypt by his brothers, only later to grow up, become one of the rulers in Egypt, and when his brothers showed up as refugees of Judah, of, of, of that land, to come into there, they came as refugees into Egypt. They were refugees there, and they came and sought shelter from Egypt. Moses was an unaccompanied minor, sent up a crocodile-filled river so that he might actually have a chance at life. That's how Moses' story starts. Later, Moses flees for his life to Midian because he feared Pharaoh's wrath. Finally, he returns to rescue an exiled and refugee people who had become slaves in the land of Egypt to bring them out. Naomi and Elimelech were refugees of Israel living in the land of Moab at the time that Elimelech dies. When Ruth returns with Naomi, Ruth is now a refugee from Moab living in Israel. David fled as a refugee from Saul and stayed with the Philistines, which is ironic because the Philistines become their great enemy later. But he lives in the protection of King Achish in the with the Philistines out of fear for Saul. Elijah fled King Ahab and Queen Jezebel into the wilderness where he just asked God if he could just die. It was that bad. The people of Judah were forced from their land in Israel to become oppressed in the land of Babylon. The Bible is a story of forced migration. This is the way the narrative of scripture moves. People move because they are forced from their homes. And because of that, the biblical narrative, because it's such an integral part of the biblical narrative, the Bible is very, very clear on the ethics regarding refugees. This is a big deal to the Bible. And so it is true that Jesus might be the most important refugee in the Bible, but he is certainly not the first. You know, there's oftentimes, and I'm always leery when anybody says something that I'm about to say. When somebody says, this is one of the central themes of the Bible, because oftentimes we'll say something like that, and it's maybe a peripheral thing or something in it. To make a Godfather reference for Frank, let's say I said, if you asked me, hey, what's the Godfather about? And I said, well, it's about this burgeoning olive oil company in an immigrant community just trying to make their way. Like, yes, that's in there. But that is clearly not what the Godfather is about. Um, so that happens a lot. And that happens with certain ethical areas where really the biblical answer to these ethical areas, we just have to practice wisdom at the time. That's the, the unfortunate but true answer to most ethical questions we have as Christians is that the Bible doesn't directly address it. We have to apply wisdom at the time. This is not one of those things. So I say all that to really, to really make this point like, the Bible is overwhelmingly clear on how Christians and how the people of God ought to treat people who have been forced out of their homes and into someplace else. This is one of the central themes of Scripture. And I think it's most clearly stated in Leviticus 19, 33-34, if you could put that up. And he says this, and this is not the only time, and we'll look at that in just a little bit. But he says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, 
and to love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Walter Kaiser, who's an Old Testament scholar, writes this. He said, the Old Testament warns no fewer than 36 times of Israel's obligation to aliens, widows, and orphans. Orlando Espin writes, welcoming the strangers, the most often repeated commandment in the Hebrew scriptures, with the exception of the imperative to worship only the one God. So apart from the command to worship God and God alone, this is the second most common thing said. You are to be welcoming to the stranger. You are to care for the orphan. This is not just an Old Testament thing either. Whenever we see the word hospitality in the Bible, we need to know it's talking about something that oftentimes is different from what we picture. I think of hospitality oftentimes as just, hey, your buddies are coming over. We need to be friendly. We need to not be jerks to them. Things like that, um, which is sadly something that has to be told to me more often than it should. You know, we think of that as hospitality, but if you actually look what hospitality means, the word itself in Greek means love of the stranger. Xenophilia. It means to love the stranger. So anytime we read in the New Testament hospitality, which you will read that word a lot, he's referring back to this deeper biblical principle that we are to be welcoming and hospitable to the stranger, that we are to love and care for them, protect them, reach out to them. It goes so far in Hebrews 13 too, pull that up. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Right there, it actually doubles that. It says, do not neglect to show stranger love to strangers. That's what it's saying there. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It goes as far as to say, like, their presence in your life is, is godly. God is oftentimes bringing them into your life to do things in your heart. Jesus addresses this. Multiple times, and one of them is the Good Samaritan. So the Good Samaritan is this story. Basically, there's a man on the side of the road. He's been beaten. He's been left for dead. All of that stuff. The religious leaders pass by him. And finally, a Samaritan, who would not have been a welcome, who would have been considered a stranger to most Jews at the time, comes, and he cares for him. And not just kind of cares for him, fully cares for him. He pays for his whole hotel stay. He pays for all of his medical bills. He makes sure this, this man is completely and holistically healed. And he says this ultimately to say Jesus is actually placing himself as the Samaritan. The Samaritan is a, a standing in for Jesus. Jesus is saying, I was the one who did that. You were the one stranded on the side of the road. That's the part that we play in the story of the Good Samaritan. And because Jesus does that for us, we ought to do that for others. So Jesus addresses this, and he addresses it again, and I'll come back to that later. But we have to see, and so before we can even begin to understand why it's important that Jesus became a refugee, we need to understand why it's important in the greater scheme of the Bible. This is a central theme of the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament, is that we are to be welcoming to strangers. We are to treat them as our native. We are to treat them as our family, as one of our own. We are, in fact, to treat them as ourselves. It says that in Leviticus. It says that over and over and over again. Ultimately, the biblical call is to active compassion and fearless hospitality. The Bible calls the church to active compassion and radical and fearless hospitality. That's ultimately what the Bible is calling us to regarding refugees. And we'll come back to that. 
Because now I think it's important that we look now at Jesus as a refugee. We've seen that Jesus didn't become a refugee on accident. This wasn't just an unfortunate circumstance in the life of Jesus, but this was an, a reality of just the fact that the prophets told him, they, like, the Messiah always had to be called out of Egypt. The Messiah always had to flee to, to Nazareth. The slaughter of the innocents, as terrible as it was, was always going to happen because this is an important part of what Jesus is trying to communicate in his incarnation. So we're going to look at three reasons why Jesus was a refugee. I went to Dallas Seminary. You're supposed to always have three reasons for everything. And so it's just in me, so I apologize. I'm sure there's more, but we're only going to talk about three. Um, Or maybe there's only one, but we're still going to talk about three. So let's ask the question, why is it important that Jesus was a refugee? First, and I really think that this is the most important one, and 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 I'll try to make my case for that. First and foremost, the reason he did that was to identify with the refugee. To identify with the refugee. This is the way God loves. He doesn't love from afar. And Jesus, God's plan to save the world was not through empathy from afar, even if it was sincere empathy, but through the intimate incarnation of becoming the most vulnerable of whom he came to save. It was through incarnation that he chose to love them. It was through incarnation. It was not enough for him to say from afar, hey, I empathize with the refugees and I've come to save you. No, he says, I identify with you because I was a refugee and I'm here to save you. There's a different kind of love that comes from that. And guys, this is a a relevant thing. It's important that we know why Jesus came to do this because there are a lot of of refugees. In uh, the book Seeking Refuge by Stephen Bauman, Matthew Sorens, and Dr. Osam Sumer, they write this. Today, an estimated 60 million people worldwide have been forcibly displaced, displaced from their homes, a number larger than at any time in recorded history. While many remain within the borders of their country, about 20 million individuals have been forced by persecution to escape, seeking refuge in a neighboring land. More than half of those refugees are children. This is a relevant thing. We need to understand that being a refugee, being forced out of your home, whether it's in refugee in the technical sense, because now we live in a world where refugee really means something very specific. In the Bible, it was a more broad term. It really meant anybody who had to leave their home who didn't want to, for all the sorts of reasons that you can imagine. This is relevant that Jesus became a refugee because Quite frankly, there are just a lot of refugees. There have always been a lot of refugees. This is one of the realities of sin in this world, that people are forced from their home because other people do terrible things. That's just a reality of the life and the world in which we live, this world of sin. And the refugees are some of the most vulnerable people in the world. Now, not all refugees come from poverty. But a lot of them do. So they are coming from poverty into more poverty. Or many times they are not protected by the same rights. Many times they are not protected in the same way that other people from native lands are protected. They are incredibly vulnerable people. And Jesus knows this. And if he was going to be not only the God of the rich, but the God of the poor, then he knew in his way he needed to become one of them. It wasn't just enough for him to come to earth, become man, even though that seems like it should be enough. 
He became man and then became a refugee. He became the most vulnerable amongst the world. It's important that we see this um, because there's something about powerful about becoming. Uh, when I was in college, I, was, I remember it was my first um, spring break, um, and I, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't very cool, uh, never have been very cool. Um, so while everybody else was doing things that people do on spring break, I was like, okay, well, nobody invited me anywhere. I don't want to go home. Not because I didn't like home. It just didn't make sense at the time for me to go home. Um, we had a friend that owned a wireworks factory and metal factory in a place called Shiner, Texas. I had to specify that it was a wireworks and metal factory because there was another important thing in Shiner, Texas that some of you guys may know of, um, a brewery uh, that makes Shinerbach beer. I did not work there. I worked across from there, and I was 18, so it didn't matter. Um, but I, So I had the opportunity to go work there. Now, I was born upper middle class, middle class to upper middle class, have lived in a big city my whole life, was getting a liberal arts education at a major university at the time. So me stepping into a small town in Texas to work at a factory was unique. That was something different for me. I had to wake up early, get there at seven every morning, work till four, not many, you know, a 30 minute lunch break, standard stuff. My job was basically, so in Texas, I don't know if you know this, but they like big trucks. Um, it's important for getting to the grocery store um, in a timely fashion. Um, but oftentimes, they actually don't believe that the bumpers that come with the trucks are actually big enough or strong enough. So they actually make specialty bumpers that you can attach to them to just make them more capable of running everybody over on your way to the grocery store. So um, that's what they were building there. It's something called a ranch hand bumper. And my job was to sand down the, the edges of the welding. You know, I, and I did that. I burned off like all my arm hair uh, doing it. I singed my skinny jeans. It was ridiculous. Um, but, but I walked away from that experience understanding something that I never would have understood and having an appreciation that I never would have had for people who are just working in a blue-collar situation all the time. There's something powerful about becoming. There's something powerful about entering in to that moment. I have a deep appreciation for the work that they do. It's, it was, honestly, and this just shows how kind of weird I am, but like it had never actually occurred to me that all of these things that we see around here were actually made somewhere by like somebody that like builds these things and they're really good at it and it's incredible. Like those are things that I learned that I never would have learned by just reading a book about it or by looking at it from afar. I learned that because I for a week became that. I wasn't very good at it. They were probably very happy when I left. I don't think they sold any of the bumpers that I sanded down, but I got to be a part of it. See, there is something powerful and necessary in a love that enters incarnationally the life of another. And this is something that Jesus knew. This is something that God knew. And the reason why I say that this is one of the, this is, I think, the most important thing in understanding why Jesus became a refugee is because, there, because of something that has shifted in what I, what I call the, my hermeneutic of scriptures. Now, that just means the way I interpret scriptures, the way I approach scriptures as who I am. And I think that for us to really understand, particularly this story, and I would say many of the stories in the Bible, there needs to be a shift in the way we approach Scripture. Now, I want to preface this by saying, yes, the Bible is written for everybody. It is hope for everybody. It is applicable to everyone. But when we understand the context that it was written, that should shape the way we interpret it. 
Because ultimately the Bible was written for the poor, the vulnerable, and the marginalized by the poor, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. The Bible was written for the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, by the poor, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. So we need to read, at least in the author's intent, in pretty much anything you read in scriptures, it was written for the marginalized. That's the primary message, is hope for the poor. Now this does not mean that it is irrelevant, and we're going to talk about its relevancy to us. But we need to understand that. Um, Brian Zond uh, wrote an article that I think has been helpful for me. He writes this, he says, I have a problem with the Bible. Here's my problem. I'm an ancient Egyptian. I'm a comfortable Babylonian. I'm a Roman in his villa. That's my problem. See, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported to Babylon. I'm not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. Imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee Indians and African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story. And that's what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt told by the slaves. The story of Babylon told by the exiles. The story of Rome told by the occupied. Every story is told from a vantage point. It has a bias. The bias of the Bible is from the vantage point of the underclass. The reason this is important is because I think it's easy for us to gloss over this primary message. Jesus did this primarily to communicate something to the refugees. That's who he's talking to in this narrative. Now we get to hear it and we get to receive incredible things from it, but this was written for the refugee. Now there, there are some refugees in this congregation and I want you to hear the reason why this happened was because he wanted to communicate, he's with you, he identifies with you, and he's here to rescue you. That is the beautiful story of hope that comes out of this terrible story in the Bible that he is with you, he identifies with you, and he's here to rescue you. And that's the story of anybody who's been forced out of their home that reads this. Now, many of us don't fall into that category. So we have to ask the question then, if that's, that's what the message is to the refugee, then what is the, ref, what is the message of this? Why is this important to those of us who are not refugees? And thank God, that we didn't have to do that. No, nobody is saying that we should intentionally go into this just so that we can receive this message. Being a refugee is not something people choose. It's something they're forced into. So what about those of us who are not refugees? We have to answer this question. And I think it's this. It's ultimately to reinforce the biblical command of hospitality to the stranger. Those of us who are not refugees should treat refugees, strangers, really anybody forced and compelled into migration the way they would treat Jesus because Jesus was a refugee. We're treating them like that because Jesus was one. That's important. Matthew, later in the book of Matthew, Jesus actually states this more deeply in Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Let's pull that up. I'm actually going to flip to it because it's tiny on that screen. So Matthew 25. And this shouldn't be unfamiliar, but I think we're going to hear something in there that we might not have heard before. Starting in verse 34. 30, uh, where am I starting? In verse 34. He said, Then the king 
will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. Now look at this. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Any ambiguity around it is lost in Jesus' statement. Jesus did this to reinforce the extensive biblical command of hospitality to the stranger. The biblical call is to active compassion and fearless hospitality. Now, I understand that refugees have become a hot button in our cultural climate. I understand that, and, but I want you to hear what this sermon is about. The sermon is not about the policy surrounding that. It's not about the politics about that. What this sermon is ultimately about is the church's attitude towards this. I can't speak to what the nation does. Most of the nation is not Christian. But we can talk about what the church does, what we do, how we respond to this. And here's the thing. Because if we walk away from this thinking, oh, well, this is just talking about having good policies towards refugees, then we've missed what the Bible is saying. The Bible is not saying vote for hospitality. The Bible is saying be hospitable. It is not talking about our politics. It's talking about the way we as a church act. We could do all of the things politically and still not do what the Bible is saying. The Bible's call is to love the stranger, to welcome them, to be hospitable. Jesus became a refugee to remind the church of that reality because he knew that not only was he the first, he was not the first refugee and that he would not be the last one. And he wanted to put in place a system to care for them. Now, with that being said, I'm going to share a statistic that is going to seem very, very um, depressing, but I'm going to follow it up with something not so depressing. Because the truth is, despite how widespread this is in the Bible, and I do not say that lightly, that the American church does not take this command very seriously. A 2016 Lifeway research survey found that only 8%, 8% of U.S. Protestant churches are actively involved in serving refugees locally. 8%. Despite the widespread presence of this in the Bible, there is not a widespread reaction in the American church to this reality. Now, I am so thankful of the fact that we get to attend a church that is part of that 8%. And this is something that I want us to hear. There are people in this church regularly caring for refugees. Our Advent offering, part of it is going to care for refugees. This is one of the things I'm so thankful the work of Redemption Church. And this isn't to just kind of make us look 
really awesome or something like that. It's basically to say, if you're being moved towards something, there's doors that are already open. You could start this now. I think of Josh Prather and Jim Mullins. You guys know Josh Prather, and Jim Mullins is a pastor at Tempe, who, when there was an armed uh, protest outside of a mosque here in Phoenix, they went and stood between the armed protesters and the mosque to be, as Jim Mullins says, a body shield for bullets. That's what he said, and that's what they did. I think of Rachel Dahlman, who's our, community, our, our uh, local initiatives um, director here who's moving into the refugee community just to be near them, just to be with them. I think of the welcoming team, who's a part of, an active part of welcoming refugees. They literally meet them at the airport. They buy them their first meal. They help them move in. They walk along with them to help them acclimate to America, which is very, very different from where they just came from. I'm so thankful that we are a part of a church that welcomes refugees. And I say that mainly just to say that if you want to get more deeply involved by this. As I've become more deeply involved by this, I have been changed by this. God sent, I think, refugees into the world, not just for us to care for them, but because they bring something unique, a perspective that is unique, a faith that is overwhelmingly more strong than mine, into the presence of the church. So we see not only did Jesus become a refugee to identify with refugees, but Jesus became a refugee to remind us to be hospitable to refugees, to care for them, to actively pursue them, to take care of to show deep compassion. In fact, to go so far as to do all that we can to be incarnationally present with them, to love up close. And I think that's the distinction that we see. It is easy to both hate far away and to love far away. It is challenging to love up close, but that is the kind of love that God calls the church to because that is the kind of love God models in himself. The love that loves up close. So as we look at the third reason, I, I, I want to take a step away. Because the third reason, I think, speaks to the broader theological implications of not just Jesus become a refugee, but Jesus' incarnation, period. The, the third reason why I think it's important that Jesus became a refugee is to bring about the true and lasting peace of God to bring about the true and lasting peace of God. See, Jesus was, more, was a refugee in more ways than one. Not only was he a refugee that had to flee with his parents when he was two years old from Israel into Egypt and then go back to a different land, different part of Israel just to hide for most of his adult life and most of his life up until his ministry. Not only was he that way, but he was a refugee from heaven. He left heaven to come into this mess. He did that. Now, he didn't flee heaven because it was bad there, I'm assuming. I don't think it was bad there. I don't think that was his motivation. So we have to ask, well, if that's not why, then why did he come here? And I think it's because there was something important, something worth it for him to accomplish in coming into this earth. See, because the true and deep problem behind forced migration, behind all of this, is not policies, it's not politics, it's not nation states, it's not anything like that. The problem is sin. That is what's underlying all of this. We see this in the first migration of Adam and Eve, that it was sin that drove them away. And it is sin that continues to drive people from their homes. And Jesus knew that 
if he was going to be the rescuer of the refugee, he needed to be the savior of the oppressor. He knew that if he was going to truly save the vulnerable, he needed to truly save those who prey upon the vulnerable. Because if he didn't take care of that, he wouldn't truly be saving and rescuing the poor. See, he was the God not only of Israel, but of Rome at the time. He was the forgiver not only of Jerusalem, but of Nineveh. He is the savior of all, and he came to bring about the only kind of true and lasting peace that God could bring. He took away the deepest problem that we have, the root of it all, and that is our sin. He made a way for us to be rid and freed from sin. He's the God whom both the haves and the have-nots all have to bow down to, and that is good news. That is good news to the poor. That is good news to the rich. That is good news to the world, because he finally brought the shalom that he promised. I think of John Newton. Uh, John Newton wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. You may have heard of it. Um, and uh, if you know, many of you guys might know this, but John Newton, before becoming a Christian, before becoming a pastor and writing all this stuff, was a slave ship captain. He did this for nine years. He, he was the captain of ships that transported slaves from the Horn of Africa to either the US, the U.S. Indies or to America at the time. And he becomes a Christian, and he does this. And he actually goes from that to being an active part in the abolitionist movement along with William Wilberforce in England at the time. And in part of this, he actually wrote this pamphlet that he ended up distributing to all of Parliament describing the reality of slavery to them from his perspective and from his vantage point. And at the beginning of it, he writes this. He says, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. This is what's powerful, I think, in the Christmas story. And this is what's powerful, and I think, in the refugee story. That God is not only the savior of the slave, but he's the one who saves the slave owner and turns him into an abolitionist. That's the power of the true and lasting peace of God. We sing about this when we sing O Holy Night. I love this verse. It says, truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. See, that's the reality. That's the hope. Jesus became the refugee to identify with him. He became the refugee to remind us of our deep burden to them as a church. For those of us who are blessed enough to not have to leave our homes, that's the call that he does. But ultimately, he does something even deeper and even more significant, and he eradicates the sin that drives it all. I want to close by reading from the book of Revelation, because I think it perfectly describes this piece. Bring it up there. It says this, starting in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so um, humbled ultimately by your word. Lord, for those of us who have ever been in a situation where we've had to flee, we've had to leave, where we've had to become vulnerable to the world, Lord, we thank you that you loved us in that way, that you loved us through incarnation, that you became one of them and one of us, God, to love them. Lord, for those of us who have never been forced into that but have been rescued and saved by you, Lord, we thank you that you have taken care of the deepest problem that we have. Lord, our sin. Lord, I pray that if there's people here who have not recognized your forgiveness, Lord, that you would forgive them. God, that they would seek that out, that they would know that they no longer have to be slaves to their sin, but they can be freed to generous hospitality. God, I thank you for that, Lord, and I thank you ultimately that in this great story, Lord, in the incarnation, God, we can experience and see the true and lasting peace that only comes from you. We pray this in your name. Amen.